When you preach every single Sunday, um, especially if you're going through uh, a book of the Bible, you are always asking yourself, uh, are these relevant issues for people? Uh, Is this a relevant issue? Is this something people care about? And that's a good question to ask, but at the end of the day, there is a trust that the Word of God um, inherently searches our heart. Searches our hearts. <laughs> Collectively as a people and individually. But the Word of God does. It searches our hearts and, and it asks and answers questions that maybe we didn't know to ask. And it talks about things that we need formation in. We need to be formed in certain ideas that we would not otherwise think about or maybe wrestle with. And this is the power of preaching through a book of the Bible. Now, when we come to the end of the book of Luke at the end of this year, we're going to um, have a few sermon series that are not grounded in an entire book of the Bible. So since I've been here for almost three years, we've done the book of Jonah, we've done the book of Colossians, and we are coming to the end of the book of Luke. And being grounded in Scripture that way, with all of its ups and downs and highs and lows, is good for our souls. And sometimes some verses are super exciting, and other passages are not so much, but they still form us, and they shape us powerfully, because the Word of God represents the very mind and heart of God. And so as we move through Scripture with all of its twists and its turns and its ups and its downs and its exciting statements and its mundane statements. And yes, the Bible has some things that are sort of mundane. The Bible speaks about some things that are just kind of part of our everyday living. And this reinforces to me and has the idea that the Christian race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. The Christian life, uh, if you find yourself feeling um, unexcited uh, sometimes, or like your faith has just kind of, you know, fizzled out, uh, that's probably normal in some sense that every one of us at some time or another has felt like we're just on maintenance. We're, we're just getting by every day and holding on to our faith. And I, I think that that's okay. That's okay. It's great also to have moments where we're on fire for the Lord where something has sparked in our hearts, where we are overcome with zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for a good while we we get plugged into a certain idea about the nature and mind of God, and it just colors everything we do, and that's preferable, uh, but it is not always the best gauge of whether we're walking with the Lord. Sometimes walking with the Lord simply means persevering every day, day in and day out, waking up, going to work, taking care of our business, paying our bills, doing whatever we have to do, being good citizens, and all the while trying to shine the light of the gospel in our heart, mind, and and the actions that we carry out every single day, and that's okay too. So we're back in Luke, verse 15 through 17, just a couple verses. Uh, Listen as I read the word of God. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them, the people, that is, bringing the infants. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, 
and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Father, now we thank you for this word and pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to convince us of this message here found in these short verses in Luke. Transform us by it and let our understanding expand that we might grapple with the message here. Convict our hearts and let us leave differently than the way we came in. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, in the modern world, children matter. Billions of dollars are spent every year on early child development, commercials and advertising, television programming directed toward our children. I recently saw uh, the movie about um, Fred Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I don't know if you've seen that yet. And it was good. By the way, if uh, you didn't know, he was a Presbyterian minister. Um, But it was really good, and that marked an even... Um, uh, a modern shift, even in recent times, directed towards children, caring for our children, thinking conscientiously about taking care of children and helping them develop and, and leaning into what kids feel and how kids experience their world. Now, in this modern age, people who abuse children are rightly seen as the lowest of our culture, right? We don't often call somebody scum, but Right, we would hear some that kind of language used at towards someone who abuses children, and rightly so. Someone who would abuse children. And charities and scholarships pop up every year to help children grow and develop mentally and physically, emotionally, and uh, laws are put in place to prevent the abuse of children and um, even used as cheap labor. I was talking with my son, we were talking about. Um, clothing that is made in, you know, in areas where, uh, where, where kids aren't abused and um, fair trade practices. And so that's not just here in America, but that's kind of spreading throughout the world. And that's a good thing. And we take these things for granted because we just assume this is the way of the modern world. Um, but in the ancient world, such was not the case. Children were treated like property. Uh, They had the social status of slaves. Their opinions were irrelevant. And in the inner halls of power, they didn't matter, let alone were given access. Whatever value children had was relative to whatever any future contribution that they might be able to make as they got older towards farming or the family business. And I think I've talked to some people recently who said they grew up on a farm and they were the farmhands. You know, mom and dad owned a farm, and at six, seven, eight years old, they were out there, you know, uh, putting the pitchfork in the hay or whatever you do on a farm. (laughs) I grew up in the city. (laughs) But whatever value children had in the ancient world was relative to any future contribution, but as as it was as... As small children, there there wasn't much value to children. They were a part of the household property, and they didn't have a whole lot of intrinsic worth, speaking broadly, okay? 
Now, besides all of this, the mortality rate among infants was very high, and infants and small children uh, were often succumbed to the ravages of famine and war and pestilence and disease, and also the practice of infanticide and child abandonment was widespread in the Greco-Roman world. It was normal and regular in that pagan society to leave children um, to die if it wasn't the right sex or if, if um, for whatever reason, someone didn't want an infant, they would leave children. Now, there's a whole other side discussion about why the gospel of Christ grew in the ancient world because Christians were some of the first demonstrators of a compassion that the ancient world had never seen. They would go and adopt orphan children that were left to die on the hillside. Um, and and that, Now, that's just a side discussion, but um, this was rampant in the ancient world. The value that we place on children today, that you place on your children today, uh, just didn't exist in the ancient world in the same way. It doesn't mean people didn't love their children, but it just meant that culturally and as a society, children did not, we did not, People did not esteem children with the worth that they they have today. Now, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation recognizes the value and inherent worth of children, right? God's covenant promise to Abraham was to include his offspring. In fact, part of that covenant promise that God makes to Abraham is, oh, by the way, include your children in this because this promise is to you and your offspring, many generations to come. It was for Abraham and his offspring. The covenant promises were. And it says here in this passage that the people were bringing their infants to Jesus that he might touch them. Well, as I just mentioned a minute ago, the infant mortality rate was so high, and the picture in verse 15, if you can... Imagine the, the, the picture in your mind of peasant women in the Mediterranean world, many whose babies would be dead within the first year, holding them out fearfully for Jesus to touch. Since Jesus had been healing people and even raising people from the dead, the parents hoped that this touch will protect their infants from evil and preserve their lives, and they assume that he'd be glad to touch them. Now, there's a folk tradition that is probably as old as humanity is in many societies to bring infants and children to a visiting prophet or a shaman to receive a touch of blessing. This isn't as foreign as it might sound. We actually still do this in our country today. If a politician is campaigning for office, people often come and will hand their babies to some campaigning politician, and he is very delighted to have a photo op of him kissing the baby, right? It's kind of a modern version of that. Um, And actually taking our kids to sit on Santa Claus's lap is, is very much grounded in that folk tradition of bringing your children to somebody with special power, right? You know, Santa's going to hear the wishes of your children and deliver a miraculous gift somehow. And, and I know it's, it doesn't seem like the exact same thing, but it's all grounded in this tradition of bringing your children forward. 
And so they brought their infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began to rebuke them. Now, does everyone know what rebuke means? They just, they just told them not to do it, you know, vehemently, maybe politely, but they just they, they, they went against what they were doing. They rebuked them. They resisted this action. And on the surface, you can kind of understand the disciples' actions, right? Jesus is important. He's got no time for small matters, let alone infants who are ignorant of who he is, right? Or small children without the cognitive capacity to grapple with his profound message of repentance, right? Well, the disciples themselves are not above petty positioning for rank. John Nolan states, our first slide here, if you would advance the slide, that he says it's likely that their own self of self-importance based on their privileged proximity to Jesus, it's, that's what's offended by the approach, in part. As I said, the disciples were not above petty positioning for rank and status. For the disciples, who at this point are still very immature in their faith, being close to Jesus is this privileged status. But Jesus teaches them and us how infants model how the kingdom of God is to be received. He says in verse 16, let them through. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such as these infants belong the kingdom of God. And the idea is that the disciples are not to hinder, but enable the youngest among them from being brought to Jesus and receiving the blessings of the gospel. Now, in our modern sort of rationalist society we live in, we just assume that all things take place through the process of kind of rational, cognitive, you know, intelligent understanding of everything. But that's not exactly true. Some things affect us and happen to us in ways that we are not always cognitively, intellectually involved in. You teach your children to say sorry, and it may take a year or two before they even know what sorry means, but through the process of doing it, they learn. And the same thing with, with goes, that goes for the word please, right? When your little children came to you or when you were a small child, someone told you when you said, I want donut or whatever it is, and someone said, say please, and at first the child resists, and they start saying please or however they say it, and they don't even know what it means. There is no cognitive participation in that action, but the doing, through the doing it, it grows on them, and they learn. And Jesus says, let them through. Let them come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't hinder these children from coming to me, for to such as these belong the kingdom of God. And there's a larger point being made here. Children... And infants represent the most vulnerable in our society. David Garland says, Jesus consistently sides with those on the fringe and considered expendable, the least. Those who have no rights. Those held cheap by others. The new community he founds embraces the little ones rather than banishing them. For to receive a little child into the kingdom is to accept and esteem even the lowliest of human society. 
How we treat our children matters, and Jesus was acutely aware of sending this message to this new community of followers and disciples that children are representative of the most vulnerable in our culture, and if we cannot receive children into the kingdom, how then would we receive those on the margins, those whom society deems as unimportant or of very low status? And this is where the literal case of Jesus receiving infants and small children becomes a metaphor for Jesus challenging the status and honor paradigm that Jesus has been fighting against in all of his miracles and teachings since the beginning of Luke. Now, I've been talking about this over and over and over again because in the book of Luke, now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have their own special message, kind of like a thread that runs through each one of the books. But Luke specifically is about the great reversal of fortunes. The message of Luke is that the gospel challenges the honor status paradigm that exists in the ancient world, and Jesus is constantly embracing those on the margins, the great reversal of fortunes. You remember Mary's song in the end of chapter 1 of Luke, where she sings, says, my soul magnifies the Lord because he has considered the humble estate of his servant and servants. And from now on, he will give the poor good things, but send the rich away empty. It's the idea that those who are small and little and insignificant are now welcomed into the inner circle of God's very presence. And that's happening right here. Jesus is welcoming these little ones, literal little ones, into his presence. That was the passage. My soul magnifies the Lord. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The kingdom of God is including those on the fringes of society. The tax collector crying for mercy in the temple. The blind man sitting on the side of the road of Jericho, crying out for Jesus to heal him. Zacchaeus scampering up the branches of a tree. Josh just preached about that a couple weeks ago. And all three were dismissed by others, but accepted and included by Jesus. That's enough to cause us just to pause for a moment and think about that. The people regularly ignored by those who thought they were important and in, by the world's standards were important. And let's not pretend for a minute that there is no such thing as important and unimportant people in the world we live in. Clearly, that's the case, right? But in God's economy, things work differently. In the kingdom, the values of this world are turned upside down. In fact, many preachers have called the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom because its values are topsy-turvy. The things that matter in this world don't matter in the kingdom. 
the first in this world are the last in the kingdom, and the last in this world are the first in the kingdom. This is really one of the most profound messages of the gospel. Repentance from sin, atonement, that's all true, but this message of inclusion of the weak is one of the most profound and often overlooked messages that come shining through from the pages of Scripture. And Jesus says in verse 17, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, I want to enter us into a couple of views of how to interpret this passage because it's good for our hearts to be lifted up in worship and inspired, and it's also good for our minds to be stimulated by the meaning of Scripture, and sometimes that includes being made aware of different viewpoints of a passage of Scripture. And so on one hand, this verse could mean that one must receive the kingdom of God as one receives a little child. I call this the hospitality view. The idea that you must receive the kingdom the same way you would receive a small child, considering that the weak and powerless, a child is precious and deserves the care of someone of higher status. In the same way, the kingdom of God, though on the surface weak, because it's not like the powerful kingdoms of this world with military might and imperial wealth, is deserving of our acceptance and embrace. The other view I'll call the grace view. This view has in mind a child's total helplessness and dependence on others, which explains the mention of infants. Now, this passage I read here in Luke is found almost identically in Mark and Matthew, and they use the word children, um, the Greek word paideia, uh, but Luke uses another word, brefe, which means infants. And so he's emphasizing not just children, but infants, the very youngest and smallest, and if you think in your mind the image of suckling babies, maybe a few weeks old, a few months old, being brought to Jesus, who Jesus embraces. This is the grace view, and it has in mind the idea that infants are utterly helpless and dependent on others for survival, and they're open to being helped. That's what crying is all about. They don't care if others object to their cries. Any of you who are mothers know, fathers too, and you are all at one time were infants, and so you did it. You cried and didn't care about people, what they thought of your crying. You were in need, a child is in need, and that's exactly what a child represents, is utter helplessness, absolute need doesn't care if others object. They're not self-sufficient, but receive everything as a gift. That's how you care for a child, an infant. You recognize if you're a good parent, and if your parents were good to you, they recognize that you were absolutely dependent on someone beside yourself for everything. 
And I think this interpretation hits the nail on the head. There is nothing they have to accomplish first. No intellectual prowess or understanding. No worldly accomplishments that they bring to the table. Children are at the very heartbeat of God. And the New Testament sparkles with love for children. The children especially of believers. 1 Corinthians 7 says that they are holy and special in God's sight. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter boldly proclaims that the covenant promises of God belong to you and to your children. And so it's unfathomable to me that after having made the point that Jesus would then turn around and say, oh, by the way, your infant children uh, shouldn't receive the promises and signs of the new covenant until they reach an age of accountability and can make a credible profession of faith. In, in many ways, the passage is functioning as a metaphor for how we ought to be in terms of our helplessness recognizing that we can do nothing for ourselves in the sight of God, but are absolutely dependent on the gift of free grace. But this is a literal circumstance where literal children are being brought to Jesus, literal infants, and he is receiving them. And not only that, but proclaiming boldly, the kingdom belongs to them. These most vulnerable, the ones who can only utter sounds, not even words, not even make a demonstration of their understanding, to such as these belong the kingdom. You know, Jesus not only flattens out social rank and social status, but he flattens out any idea of spiritual rank. We are all spiritually in need. We are all spiritually and morally bankrupt and in need of God's hospitality of grace. So there, I brought both views together, the hospitality view and the grace view. We're all in need of God's hospitality of grace, and it behooves all would-be followers of Jesus to recognize our total inability to measure up to God's standards and deserve anything from God, and like a child, acknowledge the helplessness and the need for grace, not just when we come to Christ, but throughout our entire life. Without the grace and enabling power of God, we are helpless. We're nothing in the sight of God except because of His grace. And His grace is given to us on account of His Son, Jesus. I once gave an illustration of how Jesus brothers us in the gospel. It would be like a man on a playground with his son playing and sees another boy playing off on his lonesome who can't re, re, you know, reach the bars. You know, when I was, they called it the jungle gym when I was a kid, but, and he can't play, and there's no one to push him on the swing, and the father says to his son, go over there and ask him if he wants to play with us. Jesus brothers us in the gospel, and God becomes our Father. We're helpless without Him, completely in need of His grace. And without that helplessness, leaning into and embracing that helplessness, that total inability before God, you will never enter the kingdom of God. 
because right after this passage is the parable of the rich young ruler in absolute stark antithesis to the infants. Well, his whole demeanor is one of self-sufficiency. He's got money, he's kept the law, and he goes away sad because Jesus doesn't totally affirm him. Jesus says, sell everything you have. This idea of self-sufficiency completely washes out before the feet of Jesus. Now, the enduring legacy of this verse is its power to serve as a metaphor. In the same way, and this is the big idea that I want you to take away, in the same way that infants are utterly helpless and dependent on others for survival, so we too are spiritually utterly helpless and dependent on Christ for our survival. We're dependent on them. We need them every day, every step of the way. We don't encounter Jesus, get strong, and then say thanks for the help, and we're back out into the world to do our own thing, living by our own strength and in our own power. And as Christians, if you find yourselves feeling weak, you may have, unbeknownst to you, started to rely on your own strength. It's good to remind ourselves that we're weak and helpless and needy. That's good. It's good to remind ourselves of the gospel of grace, that it came to us freely as a gift, by grace, not because of anything we merited or brought to the table or did. It came through God's love, and it came by grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of truth. You prayed, Jesus, that your people would be sanctified in the truth. The word is truth, you said. Help us now to lean into this weakness that we have because it is in our weakness that your strength is made perfect. Let us embrace our weakness and rely on your strength. Let us acknowledge our utter helplessness and revel in the free gift of grace that you have poured out so abundantly on account of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this now. In Jesus' name, amen.